key mantra for start made is talk to your customers. Start talking to your customers. Start finding out who they are and start talking to them. That's John Carroll, a co-founder of Vexev, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who've backed them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Am I about to have a heart attack? What is the shape of the artery right now in my arm? Am I at risk? Checking out whether you're about to have a heart attack is virtually impossible. It's expensive and obviously a pain in the ass to go and see a doctor. Vexev wants to give us the power to scan ourselves. Doctors are alerted if we're at risk and it might be just as easy as placing your arm on the couch as you watch some Netflix. By the end of this hour, you'll learn just how John and Eamon, two PhDs, earn the insight that led them to believe that they can bring an affordable health service that takes vascular health from a reactive state to a proactive 3D map that we can self-serve over time. We'll see what they took away from Australia's most epic accelerator start mate and why Australia is one of the best places in the world to start a healthcare company. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Blackbird's principal, Tip Pionsenboom. She'll reveal what it's like sitting on a board of a company whose field she has no prior experience in, what she's learned from these founders and how she's built conviction in Vexev from pre-seed to the seed stage. After interviewing this team, it really does feel like we're on the verge of truly something special. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. And if you liked this episode as much as I did, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Two PhDs studying the vascular system. What's that about? How did you get there? Give us an idea of what inspired you to even start a PhD. Yeah, so I started with a physics degree and in my third year I really uh, was looking at fluid mechanics modeling around helicopter blades and then it was the sort of honors year <laughs> that I was looking at f- fluid mechanics around boat propellers looking at how water turns to vapor and these were very interesting in like sort of mathematics but wasn't very interesting in applications and so I really wanted to continue studying I love like maths and physics and exploring that kind of nature and ended up getting accepted into uh, a research group which studied like the fluid mechanics around blood flow and so that was really interesting but I ended up wanting to take a break in my life and so I went to Europe and hitchhiked for 13 months around Europe wow. yeah and I was just like yeah and so then yeah I basically came back to this sort of PhD and started and I started at the same time as John and it was really just for me, it's like the PhD has to be better than traveling because I don't know, I just heard all these stories that PhDs suck and it's always like slow and boring and like, I know you can live this life, so you may as well live it like once really, really good. And so the PhD has to be better than like traveling around Europe. And that was like the start for me. How about you, John? Yeah. So, I mean, I met Eamon the very first day of the PhD because I started within that research group as well. So. I mean, I remember the very first day, we, it was like orientation, we're all coming in. And so that's where I, I met Eamon and we all sat down. And then at the end of, I guess, orientation introduction, everyone went off to their research groups. And then, you know, I followed Eamon, we went off to our group and we just sort of sat there next to each other. And then, I, you know, that's when I guess the first discussion of many started. And like the first thing 
Eamon did was essentially put me on notice. He's saying, if this isn't interesting, if this isn't good, I've, I was hitchhiking, cost me nothing, I'll, I'll go back there. So, you know, that was kind of me being put on warning and I'm thinking, oh, I've just made a friend, I want to keep him around, what can we do? So I, I, I'd been at UNSW, which is where we started our PhDs. I'd been there doing a double engineering, biomed, a mechanical degree. And one project I really enjoyed was creating these fluid dynamics models uh, using computational fluid dynamics, so CFD. We create these models of blood flow within veins and arteries, but it was, I guess, out of shapes and geometries you'd make yourself on the computer. And so why I was in the PhD is I wanted to take that to the next level and create real geometry. So use real patient veins and arteries and model real flow through that. So I guess in that spot where Eamon, I guess, put us on notice, we're thinking, we, why not do something massive? We've got four years ahead of us both of us were fortunate enough to be on scholarship so we had no money issues to worry about we just had this long time ahead of us and so for us we were looking at you know where can this application really take us and where can we go with this and when we were looking at you know the first thing you do in a phd is you start looking into the literature it's called a literature review you look at what our research is currently doing in this area and we could see that there was almost this holy grail that a lot of researchers were chasing after which was trying to create uh, realistic flow models within patients veins and arteries but whilst they're getting disease and so that's really important is that process of having a baseline case and then developing disease over time and being able to model the flow throughout that process because what uh, research was starting to unpack is that there is a link between the blood flow behaviors in veins and arteries and the development of disease. Um, and this is probably a good time to really simply explain what dis vascular disease is and what it looks like. It's essentially just looks like an hourglass. You imagine you have a tube and then it narrows and then it comes back out. That's what vascular disease will look like from a geometry perspective. And so, yeah, I'm sure you hear about, you know, plaque or all these other things, but it, it can be quite simple. It's just a narrowing or in the case of an aneurysm, it's the opposite, it's a blowout. So I think that's the lens that we really need here as far as understanding vascular disease. It's just simply that shape, the, the appearance of a narrowing or, or a blowout. And for us, it was about being able to see that develop over time, see the blood flow behaviors that are in that particular location that potentially led to that. And then that's if you can start to make those links, that's really important because you can start to obviously not only detect disease and track disease, which is, uh, I guess, relatively straightforward once you have those shapes, but most importantly is being able to actually predict. If you know what blood flow behaviors are likely to induce vascular disease in a certain area, you can essentially make a prediction that vascular disease will appear in that area. But again, going back to this whole holy grail thing, it's, it's actually really difficult to capture these patient scans as they're getting disease. I'll just sort of bring it back a bit. So really the challenge for us was to take medical images of patients who were about to get disease in order to answer the question of who is about to get disease. So it's a massive chicken or the egg problem. And so our approach to that was to use pr probability essentially. We found a group of patients that are really likely to get disease in a known location. And so then our strategy was to scan these patients from the moment they were likely to get disease. We were going to scan this location that we expected to see disease and hope that we caught a few. 
And so that's how the project started for us was starting with patients and I'll explain they're patients who have end stage kidney disease. So their kidneys are failing, which means they need to replace that lost function, which means they need to go on what's called hemodialysis. Mm -hmm. And to keep it really simple, hemodialysis just involves taking blood out of your body, filtering it and putting it back in, which is what your kidneys would otherwise do. For these particular uh, patients, because you can't just plug into the venous system or plug into the arterial system, they're going to have a surgery first, which is going to, to put it simply, create a short circuit so that blood from your heart is being pumped to, and we're talking about their arms, so blood from the heart is being pumped to the arms and then immediately returned, which creates really high flow rates, which then enables that hemodialysis treatment. So essentially we've found our group of patients who are likely to get disease. We have a plan that we're going to scan them during that period, which can be within a 12 month period. So it was achievable during the PhD timeline. We're gonna scan them during that period and then, like I said, just hope we manage to capture a few of them developing disease. And that's how we're going to start making those links. Far out. So how many patients did you need to, I guess, get a little comfortable that you would find people developing a disease? And how did you actually get that data? Yeah, we started off with a goal of 10 patients. Uh, we ended up with over 100. And the... So when we took this idea of we're going to scan these patients after they've had this surgery in the hope of, well, hope is a bad word, but under the expectation that some are going to get disease and that's how we'll be able to make those links. But essentially that, how that would play out is that patients would go and have an MRI scan every week and we'd collect that data. And it turns out you, you just absolutely can't do that. So like our co-supervisor was a vascular surgeon and this was like at the Prince of Wales hospital near like next to the university. And so he had like patients and he was, I guess, a very innovative surgeon. He really cared for the patients and really wanted to like fix this problem. And as a vascular surgeon, that's usually just by doing better surgeries. And so I guess having a sort of engineer and a physicist inside this clinic that he was starting to run. And that was a way of sort of monitoring these patients and seeing what types of disease they were getting, where they were getting. And they're all sort of similar. And from the literature, it's like there's a huge rate of disease. So 50% of the patients will have a vascular access failure within 18 months. And so those are the kind of probabilities you're looking within. And so that was like, I guess, in a way why we, this subset of patients was critical because it was within that, within that time frame of our PhDs. But being up at the clinic, it was interesting because, yeah, we went up to say, like, let's start a study where we MRI these patients every week. So how did you get through it? Tell us a, a story about one of those, or maybe not one of those 100 patients, but were you close to the patients? How did it work? Well, what we saw is that uh, clinicians could still have a look at the patient's geometry with ultrasound, which is a, a handheld one that lets you kind of see through the skin and you can see in one slice what it looks like. So we, but we really needed 3D geometry. So we built our own system over about 12 months where we took that ultrasound, handheld ultrasound one, and then we also added a bunch of other systems, including a 3D tracking system. And then from this, we were able to create our own scanning system that was you know, low cost, very low risk, because it was ultrasound. But like the most important part of the system was that the whole entire every single component would fit inside this suitcase. And so what that meant is that we could wheel this suitcase from the university up the road to the hospital 
we could sit in the hospital and that's what then allowed us to, I guess for the first time, like bring that scanning to the patients. And so it had to be like quick to set up, quick to scan because the patients don't have that long. And then I guess low cost that we have like a budget within our PhDs to carry out this procedure. And ideally we had to be able to do it every week so we could like capture disease as it progresses. And so I guess it was like almost every Wednesday morning we'd pack everything up and it fit exactly in this like random suitcase that we bought. And like it was so coincidental everything just sort of fit in perfectly and we couldn't fit like one more thing and then yeah, rolled it up and then we like set it all up and yeah, started scanning these patients. And once we got the data, we'd come back to the university and use this data to be able to run our computational fluid models on our like the um, basically what's called like supercomputers because they take like days to months to run essentially and so you just set them up and they just it's it's a great feeling because you go away for the weekend and it's just doing the work for you <laughs> making money when you sleep yeah. <laughs> and so were you working close with the doctors how did you set up the arrangements with them yeah, well, so as Eamon said, so we had a range of supervisors in different disciplines. Our main supervisor was fluid dynamics expert. Our co-supervisor was a vascular surgeon. So that was awesome, having that multidisciplinary kind of background for the project. Tell us about some of the patient stories that you had experienced during your PhD. Yeah, so as we were saying before, the plan was to, I guess, capture this holy grail, capture patients as they develop disease. We'd identified a subset of patients that were at high risk of disease in a known location being the forearm. And so that was the plan. And so I'll tell you how that kind of played out. There was, there's one particular case that really always comes first to mind. And that was a patient who had this surgery procedure, creating that short circuit. It's called an arteriovenous fistula. And so we were able to take a 3D scan straight after that surgery, which gave us an awesome baseline case. There was no disease. It was relatively healthy veins and arteries. And then a week later, we came and took another scan. And as we took it back to the lab, we could have a look. And what we could see is that after that surgery, everywhere had developed outwards. It had grown outwards. It had readapted to this changed environment, except there was this one point about five millimeters along the vein where it hadn't grown out, which was a bit interesting. A week later, we came back um, and we took another scan of the patient and we could see again, everywhere else had grown outwards. But this one location that I'm talking about that we saw the week before had actually grown inwards and was actually starting to reduce. Like I said, that hourglass figure was starting to emerge. But it's also interesting because it's not in 3D geometry, it's sort of the veins and arteries are very like twisting and bending. And so like when you're looking at a 2D slice of these vessels, it's quite hard to see what's actually going on. And so we'd have to always go back to our lab and reconstruct what was happening. But on our scan, we saw something quite interesting on there. We just didn't know what. So. When we came back then that, four, that fourth time to see then what, what's going to happen next, the patient actually didn't come back. And, and we later found out the patient was downstairs in emergency, having undergoing a procedure to have this fixed. Oh my gosh. And that was strange to us because like this period of time where you create this surgery, I guess most surgeons usually wait around six to eight weeks before checking it again. So they wait for the vein to what's called to mature, mature into an artery to become like ready for cannulation with these big needles. And so they'll just wait for it to mature. And part of our study was actually following these patients weekly as they mature, so we could see how the vein remodels into an artery. And this, in this case, it was unsuccessful, but we're actually capturing that 
unsuccessful case, mm. which otherwise would have been completely missed. So that's, that was the first thing that really struck us is that this is happening and we're completely blind to it. We just wait until it's so bad of a problem that the patient presents an emergency. Mm. So that was one case. And then, I mean, the rest that we saw, it was, to be honest, absolute carnage. There was almost no patient we encountered that didn't have vascular disease present in some way. And then that's what really changed our thinking towards vascular disease. It's not a static thing. The most important property of vascular disease is really about the, the velocity. So how fast is it progressing? How aggressive is it? And we're starting to understand that that is far more important than just straight up, is it present? Which means that when we think of then how um, medicine's currently practiced for, with these patients, it's very much a wait and see approach. The patient will turn up because they've got symptoms. It's those symptoms that are gonna cause that first scan to be ordered, at which point you're only confirming what you probably already know, vascular disease is present. Again, you don't know how long it's been there. You don't know how aggressive it's moving. And then that, that makes it hard to treat because like how would you treat something that's aggressive or non-aggressive or what led it to become that way in the first place and how would you treat that so it doesn't do it again? And for these particular patient, there, what was really, I guess, insane to us was that there are so many of these generalized rules. There's things like the rule of sixes or where it's almost this one size fits all approach for these patients where I guess we're potentially for the first time really seeing that like, all of these patients are so different. The rates of progression are so different. We saw cases where from the first scan, they'd already have a bit of disease. We'd scan six months later and it had barely moved. For other patients, again, like that first case, we'd see it moving week to week. And again, that for us is the most important property, not just binary, is there or isn't their disease. And then that's what really, well, that was a, a, quite a moment for us because we thought, you know, we can continue, we can do a bit of research or we can try and do this at a bit of a small scale, but there was nothing particularly stand out about this clinic that would, that means that, you know, it's this clinic getting really high rates. In fact, it would be probably one of the better clinics in the world. We're talking about Eastern Suburbs Hospital. Whereas in looking deeper, we could see that th this is a huge problem. Um, even just for this one subset of patients, vascular disease is, I mean, it's, it's really, the, the, these patients are already, they've got kidney failure. They've now had a surgery that's changed their vascular system so that they can replace that lost function. And it's now creating more problems for them. I think this would be a good point to highlight how the existing operating system works within hospitals and especially within vascular disease and then how you're thinking about updating that operating system yeah so for us whilst we were up there to collect to chase off that holy grail trying to collect those cases of disease progression what we were really doing was experimenting with a more proactive form of monitoring so our experience is that, again, patients will wait until symptoms and then that's when they enter the hospital system and that's when they have their first scan, that's when it all goes from there. Whereas what we saw is that if we, particularly for patients that are high risk, start just monitoring them and monitoring mean, in our mind means 3D imaging. If we're, if we're doing that, then patients, we can act before symptoms. So we don't have to wait until patients get to that symptomatic stage before doing anything about it because when it comes to vascular disease you don't feel the progression you can get to almost a complete blockage and you won't feel anything 
But those first symptoms, they can sometimes be an, an organ shutting down. If, if we want to say, talk about a heart attack, a heart attack is literally just vascular disease of the arteries that feed the heart. It's not a problem with the heart itself so much, it's the problem of the arteries, as I said, feeding the heart. So if those arteries start to narrow, you won't feel it until suddenly the heart isn't getting enough oxygen, that's when you're going to feel it, right? That is way too far down the line. Unless you've had your heart scan recently, it's a scary thought, but there's no way to know that that isn't happening for you. And again, from us and now, and given our perspective of, of what we saw, like that is such an insane concept that we're just gonna sit here and wait until we feel something to get our first scan. Is that largely, is that problem due to the scan being in 2D? Or is the problem that we're not, I guess, checking in often enough? Is it the way that we can see, are we blind or is it the way uh, the model works? We, we believe that that problem is just down to purely the expense. And so that's the expense of say an MRI or CT scan. They're, they're, they're the um, gold standard when it comes to 3D medical imaging. There's also, as I said, the, the operator who's been specifically trained to use that system, they're expensive and interpret what vascular disease looks like and then also make the call whether like in surgical intervention is necessary to fix the problem. If we're talking about a proactive system using today's technology, that's going to involve not just then that regular expensive scanning, but also someone sitting through and looking through the images, looking for disease, which is obviously a job that's a lot better suited for an algorithm. Yeah. Um, and, that, and then that's I guess what really stood out for us is this entire thing, therefore, because of what we saw and because of the way that we uh, carried out our scanning, we saw for ourselves that it can be low cost, it can be safe, and vascular monitoring can absolutely be performed by an algorithm. And, but the main thing is the imaging has to be done regularly. Okay, how regularly? Um, I mean, that's the research. So we're carrying out scans every week, and for these particular type of patients that we're scanning, disease happened within weeks but we also saw disease happening within six months or eight months and that's I guess the very another problem of sort of today's standard of medical imaging is that you get a scan you see disease when do you when do you perform the next scan because you don't have any sort of time points or longitudinal data to make that assessment of how fast the disease is progressing but really the main barrier then towards re the regular imaging from the scanning side is Sorry, let me rephrase. In order to allow for the regular imaging to feed this sort of algorithm-based monitoring system is that the scanning itself has to be convenient. It's not just about low cost and safe, it's about can the patient scan themselves, or do you really need a, a really high trained operator to scan? And does the medical equipment need to have 100,000 knobs and dials in different settings? That's those are the, I guess, the, the, the key things that are holding back from a low-cost, non-invasive, proactive monitoring system. But I guess in our mind, we'd basically just prove that that can exist. The only thing missing, the only thing, the only problem with our scanning system back then is that it required Eamon and myself to literally drag the suitcase to the patient to scan them. So that's not very convenient if we're talking about a large-scale application. And so I guess that's the perfect way to lead into then how we got here, because from that research, we were able to complete our PhDs, publish a few articles, but really from, from our perspective, like the next steps were to, were, were, was this mission. We, 
we wanted to roll out this proactive vascular monitoring service for as many people as possible, like all across the world. We didn't want it to be a one clinic, two clinic, slow rollout. We want to find out how we could roll this, you know, monitoring, this proactive monitoring algorithm. We want to roll that out and make that available to as many people as possible across as many different vascular applications as possible. And so I guess that is then the moment where we first came to you guys at Blackbird. And that was our first pitch is that this is everything we've done. This is everything we've seen. The next step for us is we need to develop a product that the patients can actually use to scan themselves. And we need to keep the low cost, the high level of safety from the old system, but absolutely we need to build in now convenience that the patient could scan themselves. Mm. Let's rewind then back to the very first pitch. How did you come to meet Nikki and how did the pitch go? So Rory, the founder of Propeller is a long friend of mine we went to school together we went to uni together and honestly it was just a coincidental ran into him when we were about halfway through the phd and we started telling him about what we've been up to and then that's when he told us you know you guys have to talk to nikki and it was like seeing him in this room and with all his like sort of team there and he was just showing us like his product and it was inspiring almost to see like all these people just working on this focused mission yeah this is rory and I guess he showed us his program and just had God mode. It was like awesome to kind of see that all the sort of he was building, but just that he was, I guess, leading this mission and how fast it was moving. Mm. And so from there, you went to pitch. How long after you had met with Rory? Uh, So that was actually in 2016. So that's when we first met Nikki and we told him what we've been working on. And that's when I guess it became clear to us that we actually could do this as a business we could absolutely build what we needed to build and do everything from a pure commercial perspective because in our mind that is how we are able to roll this out at a at at the scale that we were comfortable with which was a, a very large scale and when we actually came to you guys to pitch was a couple of weeks after we finished our phd so we finished the phd we came up with the name vexev and then we came to you guys and as I said, we told you everything that we'd kind of seen for ourselves, but more importantly, everything that we now knew that we needed to do. Um, and that was to completely rebuild the system while we keep the elements of the low cost and the uh, safety for the patient. But most importantly is we need to rebuild this system so that it is convenient to use. It's simple to use. We have one button and that's the scan button, you know, that, and, and that's, that's where we went from there because honestly the next step for us to develop this system was equipment that cost about $150,000. So that was a clear barrier for us and that's why we had to then come in and you know start really thinking about raising a round of capital and unlock that next stage for, for ourselves and our development. So you raised a round of capital, then you went through Startmate, which is Australia's best accelerator, if I can say that, shout out to Startmate, awesome demo day yesterday. And why did you decide to go through an accelerator after you'd already raised a round? Well, I guess we were PhD students, like really just from research, like great researchers, but like really running a company and working out even just how to email and all those things was, I guess, new to us, but also just StarMate having all these mentors from multidisciplinary fields, just being able to like advise on the business was I guess a very good benefit of joining StarMate and trying to apply for that. The other part was just how, like Rory was part of StarMate, so he was just 
saying that just go in there like it's 13 weeks of just pure like awesomeness <laughs> well what are some of the best takeaways from your experience and start mate so for a company like ours we it's it's deep tech it's a long relatively long development pipeline it's easy to just focus on that development but what was really critical for us especially at that stage moving from research into commercialization was I mean, the key mantra for Startmate is talk to your customers, start talking to your customers, start finding out who they are and start talking to them. And we're sitting there amongst a cohort, a cohort of awesome different companies and they're all calling up all their customers all day, all week. And, you know, we're thinking like, why do we need to be any different? So I mean, that's what we did. We started going beyond what we knew around that, that singular clinic that we were visiting during the PhD and, and all the patients that we met. We needed to now understand more from the different clinical stakeholders and th these are the people who are ultimately going to be the ones using our products so it was really important to understand their needs and how that factors into them what we're building and then another just purely insane coincidence is that the Startmate demo day which was in Melbourne the day after that was the international nephrology conference and so a nephrologist is the specialist a nephrologist is the kidney health specialist. So they're the clinician in charge of patients who have end-stage renal disease. But at this conference, there were 20 nephrologists that basically write the rules for how hundreds of thousands of patients, how they undergo their kidney replacement therapy and everything like that. So out of everyone in the world, these were the 20 people we had to talk to the most and they all converged in on Melbourne the day after demo day. So good. Just finished our software like testing and all our patients. And what was key was like just meeting these nephrologists. And normally at these conferences or these like big sort of medical conferences, you pay $50,000 to get a one hour sort of session with them. And so instead, well, John and I were just walking around the conference, really just trying to find these nephrologists so we could get in front of them and show them the results and data that we had from our research. And so we had it on our phones, our software, and we could show like in 3D what the veins and arteries were looking like for these patients. And when we got in front of them, they were just very interested. It was like, like they were rotating, they were seeing, they were zooming, they were asking the questions of why the disease. And they had all these questions and really wanted to know more, which was, I guess, inspiring to think that they really liked what we were doing. That's the best feedback from your customers. Well, it was just such an insane opportunity for us. We were talking, we're talking to the people that we'd cited throughout our thesis. And these are, you know, these are almost celebrities in, the, in our world. And to be able to show them then our MVP and immediately get feedback is, I guess, yeah, that, that's pure credit to start, mate. If it weren't for them pushing us to find and start talking to our customers, we wouldn't have been in front of those guys getting that feedback. And so by the end of Startmate, I guess we'd been... We'd honed down the pitch till we'd essentially made promises. We're going to build an armrest that's going to be able to scan patients. And that was before we'd built it. So we, I guess, got them excited, hyped them up for the product we were going to build, which was very much informed by, I guess, where, where they were guiding us towards what they wanted. And so straight after Startmate was just then this rapid development process where we started, you know, moving quickly. We're ordering parts from all over the world, from America, Europe, Israel. All these parts are converging in on our um, at our co-working space at 251 Riley Street, and that's where we then started building this new system. And, and yeah, and was realizing, I guess, the the freedom that we had with developing this type of system. So we had an ultrasound machine which could do generate any types of ultrasound you want. So we could generate ultrasound to the arm at different frequencies, different lengths, 
and then we had like software to write all this kind of code and the idea was just to put your arm onto the scanner scan it and upload the data to the cloud yeah and so i mean the the development actually went over too soon like so like we we thought it was going to take a long time and then actually it was like we were so excited we were like working days and nights yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was over very quick i remember coming past the office and you you guys were like yeah we're, like we work like that and it was like i don't know what your weird hours so you, you still yeah, when, when we enter i guess a development phase suddenly yeah the time zone shift we it gets to a point where we're coming in probably three or four in the afternoon and we stay till about five, even six in the morning. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. But there was just this one, I guess, like night that I was working on the sort of the ultrasound system and John was working on the software and we're like, well, like I'm ready. And he's like, I'm ready. And we're like, well, why don't we just connect the thing? And so we just connected and it just also like worked and we're like, wow, like it's working. <laughs> and, and it was also like coincidence. That's not what happened. <laughs> yeah. And it was like coincidence that like, like Tip was coming in the next day. So we was meeting up like regularly with Tip and we're like, oh, it's working. Do you want to have a scan? And she was like, yeah, sure. So like Tip was actually the first person wow. to get scanned, wow. which was pretty yeah. cool. What's the best piece of advice that someone gave you in Starmate? I, I think it's talking to the customers. I don't think... I think we were pretty solid as far as what we wanted to do from a development perspective, but I think without Startmate, we may have just gone off and started developing and doing that almost in a vacuum, you know? And, and I think that's really the where I'm most grateful and where I feel like we really de-risked the whole thing was just having the conversations before we built the thing because it's just much harder the other way. That gets me thinking, what... During your PhD, you guys are researchers. Uh, when did you start to think that we could build a company that's going to serve millions of people across the world? It was when we came in and visited Rory at Propeller because what they were building isn't actually too different from what we're doing. It's just around, it's obviously in a different industry and a different application, but more around running a company from Australia, having customers in the US, really utilizing the internet, having a cloud platform that people can work off. For us, all of those features are what made us and our, our vision and our plans completely feasible. The idea that we could have clinics all around the world with our devices scanning and we could have clinicians then even not anywhere near those clinics, completely remote, able to just interact with the cloud. Seeing all that happen is what really made us feel like this is completely possible. And it's really, I guess, only possible now. It wasn't possible 10, even five years ago. The, the technology just wasn't there, but it definitely is now. So along the journey, so you started the PhD in 2014 and then, okay, so you're two years in, you're about halfway through the PhD and you start getting the bug that we can create something pretty substantial here. Absolutely. It was just after we'd built that first scanning system and we came in, we saw Rory, we saw what he'd been building. We told him, I guess, what we had. And then that's when he was like, all right, you need to talk to Nikki at Blackbird. And so Nikki was more, he was like, I love this, but why aren't you doing this now? And for us, that was like a very good question. Like, why aren't we doing this now? If this is such an important problem, we should be working on it now, right? But a big part of this was still the leftover, the research. Like if we're actually gonna make this huge mission of being able to solve vascular disease, we have to complete this research into what is the blood flow behaviors that lead to vascular disease. And so that was 
like using all this data and having that time within the PhD, almost like an incubator period where you have funding and you just have time to really think. And so we use that, I guess, like John and I were just always thinking, like, how do we solve this problem on such a large scale while at the same time completing the PhD? And they're almost like two separate entities. How did you manage both? Honestly, it was like a lot of focus on the PhD and then a lot of talking about the big ideas because we couldn't really like execute onto the big ideas without this funding because we needed to buy this expensive machine. And so we just told ourselves, once, like, once we finish the PhDs, everything will be fine. And so you had just finished StartMate. You just built your first product. Run us through how you validated and tested the alpha product. Yeah, so that was actually a lot of fun. We, we were in a co-working space, which is where Startmate is at 251 Riley, and there's the Holo Propeller in there, Grok Ventures, Vero, Dovetail. Our idea was just, you know, patients can be healthy, they can be sick, it doesn't matter. Patients are human, right? The most important thing we wanted to test is, can patients scan themselves? Can they just place their arm on our device, press a button, and then that's it? And that's what we wanted to validate. So we actually put the message out to everyone in the building. We're saying, hey, we're running this, this testing. If you're interested, here's a calendly book a slot. Mm. And we just had like a lot of people just start booking slots. And it was- That's so good. Yeah, it's all automated. <laughs> you just like book for like 10 minutes. And yeah, you come for your, like, your scan. They come down, they sit, they put their arm on the scan. And it was weird because in the clinic, it felt almost like the clinic where we would have to do the whole setup. But instead, like John and I were sitting back and the scan just like automatically does everything. And we're like, oh, we're like automate ourselves out of the job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that's how we knew like the, the, the suitcase. That... <laughs> and uh, how many people did you end up needing before you had enough data? No, so th this wasn't, I guess, a clinical trial for us. This was purely just about, can someone who has absolutely no experience with a medical imaging system be able to scan themselves. And that's what we wanted to validate. And so I think we had about 30 people uh, participate in that. And that was what we needed in order for us to then have that conviction that we need to now start moving straight into real product development. And following that product development, you then start clinical trials and it all gets very serious from there when you're talking about you know regulatory considerations, real patient data and everything like that. So it was really great for us to validate it in a more uh safe and low risk environment before we then start moving into the the more serious aspects of medical device development okay so talk about the next stage you just received 30 people you built some conviction that this product people could use it and loved it and then then what well for us that was the moment where we knew it was time to move to the next phase so the the next thing we did was we had to raise our seed round so we focused on that coming out of the trial. We raised that round and uh, we were really fortunate actually that we were able to close that just before the whole coronavirus pandemic came down because that, that, that changed a lot of things for us. So it was really lucky for us that we hadn't made any plans or made any large moves just before that had happened because we were able to instantly readapt and realign with the environment and then what was happening you know, with all of that. What are some of the product development principles that you guys had to learn? Because obviously you had no prior experience doing it and now you're going into a completely different phase of the business. Yeah, I think the most important thing is feedback. Feedback as you're developing, but yeah, more importantly, feedback before you develop. And you're really testing hypotheses. So like 
when well especially like manufacturing medical devices it's all about like how how your quality management system or the qms is involved so you're looking at how do you test your engineering principles how do you manufacture where are you manufacturing from how is it going to be delivered and then ultimately it's what are the user needs so why are you developing this medical device and that's the sort of question that the regulators will um, ask so why does Vexev exist? So Vexev exists ultimately because of what we saw and what we experienced in the clinic. And it just made it really clear to us, we need to move to a proactive approach to healthcare rather than reactive. We need to move away from waiting for symptoms, waiting for pain before that first scan. And so for us, it's about really unlocking the ability to do that. And that just comes from having low cost per scan. So. We don't want people thinking, I can't scan, it's too expensive. That's a barrier. We don't want people thinking, I can't scan, it's dangerous. That's another barrier. And again, most importantly, we can't have people thinking, I can't scan, I don't know how to scan, I haven't been trained to scan. For us, Vexev is about removing those three barriers, having um, high safety, low cost, and accessibility. And so what that really means is having low cost devices that can scan using software. So. Scanning is still complicated. It's just that's a job for software rather than a trained human now. And so for us, we like to think, you know, what happens then if we start scanning people preemptively? If we're talking about, say, within the heart, if we're tracking the coronary arteries over time, things like heart attacks are no longer these sudden events. It's actually a long, slow development over time. And so we think, all right, if all of, if everyone across the world, so we think if everyone across the world is now on a proactive monitoring system for their coronary arteries, are heart attacks even happening anymore? Instead, cardiothoracic surgeons, do they have now years, potentially even a decade of warning before an event like a heart attack happens? And then what does that look like? And so that's really then the mission of Vexev is People no longer need to die from heart attacks and strokes and aneurysms because in our mind, that's only happening because we're blind to these events happening inside people's bodies. We just don't see it. But because we know what we're building here, we're building a way for software to see this and we're building a way to predict this like years ahead of the events actually happening. So I, I, that's why Vexev exists. I love it. And help us visualize what that product looks like. What's the experience? Walk us through. So, I mean, the product for the very first application really has like a lot of users. The first is the patients. So the patients are able to get scanned at the site. So like at their dialysis clinic regularly. So they have, so patients go to their dialysis clinic three times a week, five hours a session. What's dialysis? Uh, so that's when they filter the blood externally and then they put it back in. So it's like a kidney replacement therapy. Okay, cool. And, and then there's the nephrologist, the kidney specialist, or the vascular surgeon, so the clinician, who would log in, use that data. And so the nephrologist can log in and see all their patients at once. They can see how the patients are most at risk, so they can be ranked, essentially. And then they can be collaborating with the vascular surgeon to be planning interventions. And so a vascular surgeon, which is really where the future of medicine is going, is how to create better surgeries, all the tools creating all, like the tools for surgeries i mean there's all the vr that kind of technology but it's also surgical planning and so you can start modeling what the flow would look like if you put a different type of stent in 
And so instead of doing general type surgeries and general stenting, you should be doing like patient specific stenting. And so actually we can start 3D printing stents for patients. We can start trialing them on like a model, see which one works best and then put that one in. And so all these type of technologies can exist once you start getting regular data and being able to look at what's actually happening. Uh, so that's like a metal spring that essentially forces the artery or vein open. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ultimately for us, as we gather more and more data, we're able to make better recommendations to the point where we're almost able, to the point where we'll be able to say, this patient that's just come in, the best surgery to do is this, which is going to lead to the best outcomes for this particular patient. And that's all comes down to the algorithm learning over time. What are the flow behaviors that we want to minimize? What is the most optimal shape that we want to get to following the surgical procedure? And that's all now this feedback loop that didn't essentially exist before, but that's what we're creating. And coming back all the way to the research is really the reason for these particular patients is understanding the like blood flow behaviors at this sort of rapid level. And we can start extending that out to other parts of the body. So we can start scanning the arms, but also the other peripheral body parts, there's the leg, and then building that up to be able to scan the entire vascular system. And so for us, we've, we've been largely talking about the clinical use, the clinical benefits and the users. But one thing that's been largely, uh, the one thing that we hadn't really uh, fully appreciated, especially during the PhD time, was just the amount of money and the amount of cost that all of this entails. So when we're talking about right now having a reactive approach to vascular disease, it's also the most expensive approach. So these uh, surgeries that are carried out once the disease is at a late stage, the surgeries, while they're less successful and they're more aggressive, they're also more expensive. The consequences of patients even getting to that late stage are also very expensive for, especially in like large public healthcare systems who are covering the bills here that there's a really large benefit of moving towards a proactive, low-cost monitoring leading to non-invasive planned procedures that are day procedures rather than expensive, unplanned procedures that require long hospital stays and ultimately lead to, in most cases, a poorer result. Mm. Let's talk about why it's epic to build something like this from Australia. Healthcare is different all across the world, but you want to make it a, a global product. Why Australia? Yeah, so first off, what's great about New South Wales is that the clinical trial infrastructure here is actually very sensible compared to other jurisdictions and other countries. It's very sensible here. They even have a handbook for companies like us that can immediately get clarity on what is involved in a clinical trial. And, and also just given how Australia is going with the whole coronavirus pandemic, it absolutely makes complete sense to stay here and base the operation here. And also just as far as the timing of it all, like now with the coronavirus, we've never seen reimbursement codes being made so quick to allow for insurance to pay for telehealth services. And given what we're developing is essentially an ability to deliver healthcare remotely, there's really never been a better time than right now. And we're really making this push to make sure that there is an equality among like rural healthcare centers as well as the ones in the city. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, we can say it a bit better though. It's like, oh, so, and, and one thing, especially in countries like Australia is that 
where you have a lot of the population living in remote areas, what we found is that almost the further away from the city, the further you are away from the hospitals, the more likely you are to probably need them because due to um, health inequalities and socioeconomic issues, these patients are the ones that are most at risk of things like vascular disease and kidney disease. So what's really important for us is being able to raise that universal standard. So I guess with Vexev, uh, patients that are in the remote areas are able to access that same level of quality imaging and healthcare than those that live right next door to the uh, hospitals. And that's something that's really important for us as far as raising the level of care. But it also gives us an opportunity to really stress test the system. If our system can work in those remote communities in the middle of Outback Australia, we're very confident that they're going to be able to work all across the world. And so again, that's why in Australia, we think we're really in a great position to develop from here and likely run the whole entire operation from here. There's absolutely no reason why in the future, Australian can't be an exporter of vascular monitoring. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. No worries. Yeah, no, thanks for having us. Boom. Now it's time to hear from Blackbird's principal, Tim. Thanks for cool. joining me. That's all good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> what were your first impressions of Vexev? And what are your thoughts on investing in founders that have come straight out of academia? Well, the first impression I got of John and Eamon was that these guys were a bunch of academics. It was funny. The first pitch was just filled with like diagrams of veins, stitched to arteries and just like chunks of um, paragraphs and stuff. So it kind of felt like I was in a lecture as opposed to a pitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was true. But I think the thing that surprised me the most was that their pitch wasn't filled with like a bunch of assumptions or forecasts. It was actually filled with a bunch of learnings. And if you can imagine like on a spectrum where on the one end you've got founders who are you know, looking for investors to validate their ideas and you know, they've built it, up, built it up on assumptions. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got founders who have gone out there to find clear evidence of, of what they need to build and the, they've lived and breathed that problem and they've built their own conviction. They're just, you know, and they're pitching to teach you something. I think John and Eamon was on that end of the spectrum. Um, so before they even knew like what a startup was or how to raise capital, they went out there with like a scanner and a suitcase um, to scan 150 patients to collect the data. And they went out and built relationships with cardiovascular surgeons. And they went to the operating room to watch fistulas being done. So they're just the type of founders that just showed as opposed to tell. And I think, which is with great early stage teams, their ability to show that they can reach a certain level of traction with the constraints of having like no money in their pockets rather than kind of presenting a huge opportunity without much to show for, um, that is such a great sign. And so it was just clear that they've just gained deep understanding of the problem because they've ingrained themselves into the system and the workflow. So I think it was just such a strong signal that these guys were scrappy doers and it was just much more impressive than you know, the qualifications or, or years of experience or you know, the number of impressive advisors they have on board. Mm. Oftentimes when we do see people straight out of university or college, there's the, I guess, the nervousness from our side that there isn't this sort of vividly clear vision of their pro product roadmap in particular. Mm -hmm. was, it, was, it, was this super clear with them? How did they sort of present their pitch was it with clarity or was this something that they had to work on over time 
it was definitely something that they had to work on over time. And at the pre-seed pitch, it wasn't, you know, this is the vision we're going to build and this is the roadmap and we've got it all laid out. It was just, these were the insights and this is something very interesting that we saw that the rest of the industry didn't see. And so they just had a bit of an idea, but it was kind of the stage between pre-seed to seed where they really kind of leveled up. Mm. So how has your relationship with the founders developed over time? Yeah. So when we first invested in their pre-seed, they immediately joined the Startmate Accelerator. And that cohort was also my first Startmate Accelerator experience as a mentor. And I think the awesome thing about Startmate was just contagious ambition. And that, that cohort had such a mix of companies as well. I think there was like a beauty marketplace and agri-tech startup and, and there was Fixer. And I think although it was just, they were also different, the competitive tension still existed. And that cohort really challenged each other's assumptions on what it meant to be ambitious. And so I remembered uh, the first week of Startmate, we all went to the Blue Mountains together and we stayed at this log cabin with bunk beds and, and these huge huntsman spiders. Like I, I was so, so terrified. But I think that created the bond as well. But I think just that first week, it was kind of like getting out of the day-to-day grind of building a company. And it was just a chance to kind of step back and rethink about the bigger vision. And we did this exercise, John Eamon and I did this exercise where we reverse engineered what it would look like if Vexerv succeeded in their wildest dreams. Like what was that North Star for them? And so to your point, they didn't have that coming in, but the reason that I wanted to do it and and the reason that was important was because if you can articulate where you want to go and how you'll get there, it will more likely happen. And I find that founders with that high clarity can reverse engineer their way back from the North Star and that they're intentional about the future that they want to create kind of rather than building into like the abyss. So in the exercise, we thought, let's say in 10 years time, like what was the future that Bexaf wanted to create and then um, reverse engineer our way back to nine years time. What did that need to look like to enable that vision? Like what did the platform look like? What countries did they want to be in? And then eight eight years time, like in order to be in those countries, what did go to market look like? Who did they envisage on their team? You work all the way back to like, you know, 12 months from now, six months from now, and kind of looking at all the aspects like the team, software, hardware, regulatory, and like, of course, like nothing ever goes to plan. And this is like one of many avenues that they could possibly go down, but it just helps to build on the muscle of thinking ahead, to have that high clarity of thought so that you can kind of see what the roadmap could look like and kind of what are the big assumptions that you're making right now. So we did that exercise on like some butcher's paper. We still have those papers um, sitting in our virtual boardroom to remind us what ambition looks like. But I think just throughout that startup start experience, John and Eamon were sponges and they just soaked up everything, everyone around them. They reflected on their goals and milestones. They broke down various aspects of the business and prioritized the things that needed to be done. And they built systems for managing their network and who to talk to and how to set themselves up to go to market. And so I, I just, from that experience, I just went from the scrappy PhD students lugging their scanner in a suitcase to more systematic executors. And I think coming from academia, like no one told them that it was possible to be ambitious or to push them to think bigger. And I think that week and that experience really was the first time they felt challenged on what was possible. Mm. And so they actually have quite a unique setup where their co-founders, co-CEOs went through the PhD together. It's still super early on in mm. their life as a Vexev founding team. 
what are some of the benefits and challenges that you've seen and, and maybe that is coming around the corner? Mm-hmm. Well, they did their PhDs together and they started the companies together. They run the business together. So there's a lot of trust in their relationship. And when things are hard, it gives me a lot of comfort that they have each other to talk it through and it helps them you know, make better decisions versus dwelling in their heads about it. But I think the challenge as with like every start, single startup is going from building a product to building a team. Um, how do you bring another person in, like another two, three, 20 or 50 other people into the circle? And how do you expand the bond to a wider team and create a culture that allows everyone's voices to be heard? And that's not going to be easy, but um, I'm optimistic and maybe I'm naively optimistic and I actually can't wait to come back and listen to this in a year's time or five years time, but I'm optimistic because John and Eamon are in a way that lucky that they've had the opportunity to not only work together on multiple projects for a long period of time, but they've had the time to ingrain themselves in like all the aspects of the business, just to understand how the pieces fit together and understand their own strengths and weaknesses. And I think that gives them to a certain degree, some clarity and the founders I've admired the most, again, other ones that have high clarity of thought and in the context of team building founders with high clarity actually empowers a team to develop their own judgment and make their own decisions. And in order to scale, you need to delegate decision-making. Um, otherwise the founders just get in the way of progress because the team always comes back to them to get the answers. So although like FactServe is still very early in the journey, I think John and Eamon have a good shot of you know, knocking it out of the park with them um, assembling and nurturing an awesome team. You mentioned something quite earlier on, which was they did an awesome job of systematizing their network and thinking about execution. Were there any uh, key takeaways or insights that you would be able to share? Yeah, so I think the first part was as someone outside the system, really needing to map out and understand how do organizations make decisions? Who were the key decision makers? Who do they need to talk to? What does that workflow all look like? And mapping it out in a way where you can kind of see who to pitch to, how to get people on board. And when you're selling to you know, large organizations, especially hospitals, it's really difficult without having any experience or you know, just, just going in there and, and selling cold. So yep. really it's about um, making the right relationships and, and network and figuring out who do they need to talk to. And I think they've done a really good job of actually going out there and, you know, going into the workflow itself, like going to the operating rooms and, and actually watching the processes being done and picking the brains of um, cardiovascular surgeons. And they've just gone out there and did it as opposed to kind of talked about it. And in the same sort of thread of watching these founders and, and working with them over time, how did you, build conviction from the sort of pre-seed round and then through Startmate and then as we invested again in their seed round? Yeah. So they, they did what they said they would do in the space of 12 months. And, you know, they built a functional first iteration of the 3D vascular sanding system that allowed clinicians to monitor the patients on a cloud platform. They, you know, the first application was in vascular access surveillance for hemodialysis patients and when they first started building this version the alpha there was a piece of machinery that they needed from a well-established brand that was going to charge them a lot of money for it and they managed to instead find an alternative by pulling apart off the shelf components to build their own version of that machinery i think that was just such an awesome example of 
even after fundraising, using creativity that they learned through the years of constraints to be smart about building the MVP. And at that seed stage, they were well ahead in products, but not yet in go-to-market. And, and that's fine. Like we didn't expect them to know everything at that stage. But the one thing that was obvious and it really helped me build conviction going to seed was just the accelerated speed around decision-making with more conviction, for example, around hardware partnerships or hiring decisions and the accelerated speed at which they handled more responsibilities as well. So if you just extrapolate that into the next 12 months or two years, there'll be completely different people again. And it's like, it's that growth that I've been most impressed with. So I wanted to laser in on something, which is you've never worked in healthcare. What were your trepidations about joining the board of a healthcare company? And have you been surprised? Yeah, I think, well, before joining the board, like we caught up almost fortnightly at the Royal Albert Park Board, just lunch around Surrey Hills. And it's really those times that helped build trust. Like there are moments of no expectations to impress. And there were just moments that we chose out of our own freedom to just do not much together except, you know, just talk about life. And so essentially it just started off as a friendship and the foundation of that relationship was already quite strong. Mm. So being on someone's board is kind of like being on someone's team and the most important part of the team is trust. So when you build up a trust, you know, you're their first put a call when things are good or bad and they're excited to message you on WhatsApp when something amazing happens or they don't hesitate to jump on a call when something bad happens. So just even before joining the board, we already had that bond. So it wasn't a huge step change for us. But yeah, initially I... You know, I wasn't sure what it meant to, to be on a board. Like, what, what does one do on a board? But yeah, piece of advice I got from, from Nikki, who led the VexServe investment, and he handed over the board seat to me, was to keep doing what you're doing. And that's to keep building the trust and be the first port of call for the good, bad, and ugly. And I think that foundation of friendship, essentially, made it easier to ask the tough questions and tease out the problems together because everyone knows that we're on the same side and we've always been since the beginning. So it's coming from a place of wanting to see Backserve succeed. And in terms of being a healthcare company, I think there are just different variables to consider versus other industries. And essentially, you go about making the decisions or, you know, you approach the way you help founders to hold accountability or ask the questions to test the assumptions in the same way. So it's the same skill set, I guess, that you would take across the boards. What were some of the variables that are unique to healthcare? So I guess with healthcare, there's a lot of variables when you go into market and understanding regulatory part of it, the IP part of it, the different stakeholders. Um, It's not like a software product where you can just launch on the internet and see who who plays with it, who downloads it. So it's a lot more um, systematic, more methodical, and you have to really think about how do I approach this? Who, who, which relationships do I build up? Yeah, so it's kind of a lot more difficult in that aspect. Mm. Who do you think they will need to hire over the next 12 months that will be important for them? Yeah, I think they have a really strong understanding of who to hire in terms of the product side, the engineers, their, their product founders. I think the the key hires that would help them a lot would be around the go-to-market, the people that have had experience in these organizations and understand who the decision makers are and just how to get to market faster. Thank you so much for joining me, Tip. That's all good. Thanks for having me, Mason. 
Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you liked the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.